We're approaching the end of the line in our current series called To the Scattered, the series where we've been walking through the first letter of Peter, better known as 1 Peter to most of us. And so by means of a very brief summary, uh, 1 Peter is a letter that was written probably by the apostle Peter, probably sometime around 60 AD to these Christians and churches that were scattered across ancient Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. Big idea of the letter is that God has scattered his people all among the nations in the hope that we would grow up into a source of healing and blessing for all the nations by being a community of kindness and faithfulness in a world that is very often mean and unfaithful. And so we'll pick it up where we left off last week, which is in chapter four, verse nine. We'll read through the end of chapter four. So it's about 10 verses. It says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, then you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. First Peter 4 verses 9 through 19. So show of hands. How many of you are a people who really love to host other people? You love to have people at your house. You like to host parties. There are a number of you. Yeah, I think really my two kids are raising their hands. Okay. Um, <laughs> on behalf of all of us, you know, thank you because hospitality really does make the world go round, doesn't it? Because few things are more life-giving than being in the presence of a hospitable person because hospitable people have this uncanny ability to make us feel so seen and understood, cared for, valued. Uh, my wife and I, we recently had dinner at the house of Adam and Molly Wynn. I don't know if any of y'all know Adam and Molly. They're great. She's a therapist in town. He's a New Testament professor at UMHB. And man, we just felt so cared for. Adam reaches out like a week in advance to get our drink orders just to make sure, I guess I've made too many margarita jokes over the years, and so my reputation precedes me on the liquid accoutrements that would be necessary for this dinner. Didn't know how to take it. Um, anyways, we show up. Molly has cooked us this delicious feast, man, like short rib, mashed potatoes, best dessert you've ever had, and then this homemade bread that was so big that you had to cut it with a bread saw. Did you know bread saws existed? I didn't know they existed. I go to try to cut this bread with a knife, and she just goes, no, you're gonna need the bread saw for that. I said, there is such a thing as a bread saw? <laughs> like, 
I don't know about you, man, but I never feel closer to Jesus Christ than when I am cutting bread so big that I need to use a saw to get through that thing. It was just this wonderful evening and hospitality. It actually comes up a lot in the biblical tradition, both Old Testament and New Testament, because hospitality has always been seen as a particularly fitting expression of Christian faith. Because there's something about hospitality that uniquely embodies what it means to be somebody who believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. This Greek word, hospitality, is the word philozenoi, which most specifically means friendship with strangers, okay? Friendship with strangers. The rationality at work here is pretty simple. Showing hospitality to others uniquely embodies what it means to be a Christian, Because our creation, preservation, and redemption are all expressions fundamentally of God's hospitality to us. That's why we're here, because of God's hospitality. You might have noticed at the end of basically every sermon, I pray more or less the same prayer. A lot of you could quote it at this point. What do I say? God, thank you for allowing us to be here today. We are here because and only because a good and gracious God has decided to host us for another day. And so if the gospel is the good news of God's hospitality to us strangers and sinners, and it is, then it makes sense that God's people would be especially hospitable people. And doesn't that just sound great? A lot of people just being hospitable to one another, a lot of people seeking friendship with strangers, seeing strangers as potential friends instead of potential enemies. It does sound so good, doesn't it? And then comes the second part of verse nine. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Hmm. So if hospitality is this like idyllic kumbaya sort of thing, then why would we need to be told to make sure that we're not complaining about it. Well, I think I know. (laughs) Show of hands, any of you really like to complain about other people? Come on now. Yeah, it's one of my favorite hobbies, man. And and in our defense, y'all, other people are so easy to complain about because they're just so, what's the word I'm looking for here? dumb and like selfish and self-absorbed. I mean, other people could be off. I mean, sometimes the bass player in your worship band wears a stupid Eagles jersey on game day. <laughs> we'll never let his family be baptized here. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Not on my watch. Now, wait, it feels good to get out of your system. I feel better already. And To be fair, I do think there's a place for like a a healthy kind of venting, the sort of venting we see in the Psalms, for example. And it's that sort of venting where you're just like getting the frustration out of your system so that you can then carry on with the hard work of kindness and faithfulness. And so I don't think that Peter is saying that we can never say anything bad about anybody. I mean, if you'll remember, Jesus Christ himself once called Peter Satan. Do you remember that? I bet Peter remembered it. (laughs) You know, that's probably one... You know, if even Jesus reached the end of his road, well, he just had to get out of a system and call Peter Satan. Um, but I do think that Peter's tapping into this other very biblical idea with deep Old Testament and New Testament roots. And that's this idea that you shouldn't be a grumbler. You don't want to be a grumbler. If you remember, um, one of the main sins of the Israelites in the wilderness was what? It was their grumbling. 
was their constant complaining about God, each other, the weather, the food. God miraculously gave them the food. You remember, they're like, yeah, I don't really like this that much. And despite its somewhat benign appearance, grumbling actually gets singled out as a really serious sin in Scripture. Precisely because it looks so benign, thus it easily flies under the radar. But God takes our grumbling and complaining very seriously. Because God knows that uh, the spirit of complaint, we'll call it, it slowly like squeezes the spirit of God out of our lives. Because grumblers have a very difficult time receiving and then sharing the hospitality of the gospel. And so a question that we would all probably do really well to ask ourselves occasionally would be something to the effect of, am I just getting the complaint out of my system or have I given in to the spirit of complaint? If you don't know the answer to this, Ask your spouse. They'll let you know really quick. Um, And then one of the simpler and more poignant implications here is that we should not complain about the imperfect and ungrateful ways that others often receive our hospitality because God doesn't complain about the imperfect and ungrateful ways that we often receive his hospitality. You know, how simple a thought is this, but I just really love it, that God doesn't complain about us. Something about that just gets me because I don't know, man, if I were God... Complaint would like be the Trinity's love language. You know what I mean? I would complain about all of you all the time, yet God doesn't complain about us. That brings us here to verses 10 through 3 in this wonderful little riff on how God, God equips us to be his gracious people. He doesn't just tell us to do it. God equips us to do what he asks us to do. How? Well, by graciously giving us gracious gifts that we are then meant to graciously give back to our community in service and in love. It's very similar to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. We'll read a little bit of both of those passages. This is Romans 12, uh, 4 through 8. It says, For just as we have many members in the one body and all the members don't have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually we are members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. All right, 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 12, 4 through 11. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are a variety of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for what? For the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through a spirit. And then uh, to another, the word of knowledge according to the same spirit. And to another, faith by the same spirit. And to another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. And to another, the effecting of miracles. And to another, prophecy. And to another, the distinguishing of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. There is a lot that we could unpack here about spiritual gifts and like, how do you discern them? And what's the difference in a a spiritual gift and say a personality trait or just like a learned skill that you have? Those are all interesting questions. You do your own homework on those in your small groups. Uh, Because for our purposes this morning, I think there are two things about spiritual gifts that are most important for us to walk away understanding. Okay, here they are. First, spiritual gifts are about service, not status. And then second, spiritual gifts are intended to be a source of unity, not division. So let's start with number one here. Spiritual gifts are about service, not status. 
Now, one of the things that I, I love most about sports is that when handled properly, and they are often not, but when handled properly, they are a wonderful training ground for so many of the virtues that you need to learn how to live a good and virtuous life one day. Uh, and one very difficult, especially depending upon the kid um, virtue that sports can teach you, is like how to be the best kid on the team and how to be the worst kid on the team and how to be an average kid on the team because unless mommy and daddy really shelter you, okay, sooner or later, you're, you're going to be all those kids. You're going to find yourself in all those situations because that's how life is, right? Nobody gets to be the best all the time. Nobody is the best in every situation, interaction, setting in life. Nobody is the best. If you think you are always the best, number one, you are not. Number two, nobody likes you, so you're not the best <laughs> at being liked. I can assure you. Right? Nobody's the best at everything. So I remember our first season of youth sports. Wyatt, you remember it? He's back there. Four-year-old soccer. Any of you doing four-year-old soccer right now? Four-year-old soccer people? Yeah, it's, um, it's not as cute as it sounds. Um, especially when it is 38 degrees and your little guy's running around like a T-Rex uh, while other kids are polishing off a first-half hat trick with a bicycle kick. We very quickly realized we weren't raising Ronaldo, were we? The fishers are not, we're not a soccer people, okay? It's too European for us. And so it wasn't our sport. But then there are other seasons where it's different and like it's, it's, it's a sport your kid likes more and they're better at and they've worked hard at it and they're one of the older kids in the league. And so like they're one of the better kids on the team. And so I remember going to like our first basketball practice last season and we're driving to practice and my son says to me, dad, I can't wait to get to practice and show everybody how good I am. <laughs> Gets it from his mom. Um, and I said, buddy, man, I'm, I'm really excited about this season too. And I know you've put in a, a lot of work and you're gonna do awesome this year. But remember, when you're one of the best kids on the team, the most important two things that you can do are what? Help and encourage the other kids on the team. Because you remember what it's like to not be one of those kids. I'll get that four-year-old soccer footage out for you for you to see it, right? Keeping that one for your wedding day. But God gives us these gifts, right, to lift others up, not ourselves. And this is why it is so gross. It's one of the grossest things in the world. When you see people use these God-given gifts, gifts of knowledge, spiritual discernment, financial acumen. You know, Paul mentioned a lot of different gifts to serve themselves instead of others because God has graciously gifted you with gracious gifts so that you can serve others, not yourself. That brings us to the second thing about gifts. Namely, our gifts are meant to be a source of unity, not division. We'll do one more show of hands. Last one, I promise. How many of you feel like the world would just be a much better place if it was filled with people who are more like you? Anybody else? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... Seems pretty obvious to me. Um, and yet, although we all tend to believe that the world would be a better place if it was filled with people who are more like us, it, it would appear that God disagreed. Because God's filled this big old world with people who are not like you, people who don't think like you, act like you, believe like you, uh, vote like you, drive like you. And I don't know what God was thinking either. I've filed many complaints. Um, but apparently, God wanted a world that's filled with people who aren't like you. And here in 1 Peter 4, verses 10 through 11, similarly in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, we get a peek into God's rationale. Why did God do this? Well, 
By God's design, the church is a diverse body in which many different people play many different roles. Now, you got this great body metaphor in 1 Corinthians 12. Some of us are hands. Some of us are feet. Some of us are eyes. Some of us are ears. Some of us are brains. Some of us are butts. You know who you are. <laughs> body needs a butt. There's no, there's no shame in being a butt. And God designed us this way because God wanted to make us need each other. And so God designed our diversity in order to ensure our dependence and facilitate our unity. Okay, all that to say, God wants to make us need each other, as frustrating as that is. Because God making us need each other is a great way to make us stick together. And so these differences and personality, background, gifting, they should be welcomed, not resented. God did it, and God did it for a good reason. That brings us to verses 12 through 19, and a topic that should be pretty familiar by now, namely suffering and how we should handle it. And so here in uh, verse 12, Peter starts out by reiterating what he had said in verse 1, if you remember it from last week, that we should arm ourselves with the expectation that we will suffer. Here's how he puts it in verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. This is really hard, but it's really simple, okay? You should expect suffering because suffering is normal. Again, suffering's not normal because God is twisted. Remember this from last week? Suffering is normal because we're twisted. And the world is twisted. And so God's patient commitment to sort and straighten all of us back out means that we should expect suffering in life. And I don't know about you, but man, I get that. I do. I get that. And I understand that. I do. And yet I am surprised every single time I suffer, right? Every time things don't go my way and I don't get what I think I deserve or some of my family doesn't get what I think they deserve, I get so frustrated about it, yet Peter's been very consistent on this. You should expect suffering. Stop being surprised by, I told you it was gonna happen. But what I really love is how Peter then makes it clear that this expectation of suffering does not have to result in pessimistic resignation, but it can instead result in what he calls joyful exultation. Listen to what he says in verse 13. He says, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Okay, so in other words, to arm yourself with the expectation of suffering is not to resign yourself to sadness and melancholy, because to expect to suffer does not mean that you should expect to be unhappy. And I want to linger here because I, I, I get this sense that while there have always been pessimists in our midst, you know, I'm sure there was some guy at the empty tomb who was like, took long enough, this is it. You know, like I, there's always a contrarian in the room, okay? That's always been the case. But I do just get the sense that pessimism has become a, a particularly fashionable virtue in recent years. Any rest of you feel that? I do. Indeed, you sometimes get the idea, okay, nobody will say it out loud, but you get the idea that you can't be a good person unless you are always devastated <laughs> by something. And if you want to be a really good person, then you need to always be devastated by everything, right? All the things have to be 
devastating. Uh, for example, the enormous spike in mental unhealth over the last decade in almost exclusively Western modern countries has been very well documented. It is very true, but it is also coming under a tremendous amount of scrutiny. Because people are asking why all of these Western people in these profoundly prosperous, privileged, safe, and as just as has ever existed societies have somehow come to believe that everything in the world is the worst it has ever been. Even the most important things in the world are the best they've ever been. How how does that happen? For example, check out this graph. This is really interesting. So what this graph shows is that currently over 55% of high school senior girls believe that girls, that women are discriminated against when it comes to getting a college degree. And they're believing that at the same time that over 55% of college degrees are currently going to women. Now to be clear, I am not saying that colleges are incapable of discriminating against women. I am just saying that they are apparently doing a very bad job of it because boys are getting crushed by girls when it comes to education right now. That's another story for another day, but you you get it, man. Pessimism has become fashionable for us to be devastated about everything. And so, uh, you know, our world makes a virtue out of pessimism, but scripture really does not. Because while scripture has all the room in the world, all the room in the world for grief, sadness, anger, lament. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations, right? Scripture's got all the room in the world for that, but Scripture is also very insistent that while we live a life and we live in a world filled with suffering, we can still live lives that are filled with joy because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And if that's not reason enough for you, then I don't think you've understood the empty tomb. Speaking of Jesus, I, I just get the sense that Jesus was a very happy and joyful person. Anybody else? I do, just the things he did, the things he said. He was ridiculous. You know, some of the things that he did, they were just ridiculous. We're, we're reading between the lines a little bit, admittedly, because the, the gospel writers weren't interested in giving us a peek into Jesus' psychology. You know, they weren't modern people. But I do feel like this intuition is confirmed by a text, like let's say Hebrews 12, verse 2, which tells us, we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Because Jesus Christ lived a life filled with suffering, anger, lamentation, empathy. And yet Jesus was happy. He was. And you can be too. That brings us to one final thing in the text. Something I find pretty hilarious um, that Peter apparently felt he needed to make a clarification on. And this clarification that Peter felt compelled to make is that uh, not all suffering... It's virtuous, meaning you can suffer for the wrong reasons, and you don't want to suffer for the wrong reasons. I don't have time to fully explain everything Peter says here, so I, I thought I would abbreviate it all by just cramming it into a rap. Does this sound okay? <laughs> it's a little ditty I wrote called Don't Be a Numbskull, okay? Here's how it goes. <clears throat> suffer for being faithful, not a numbskull, because jump out of a plane without a pack and go smack! That ain't the devil messing. That's just gravity teaching you a lesson because your girl left you because you left her bereft. That's not because Lucifer. That's because you are not good to her because you got no friends because you always refuse to be friendly. Then that means that you and not Satan are your own worst enemy. All that to say, 
Don't say your belly really hurting for JC when you know it's really hurting because of KFC. So make sure that you suffer for being faithful, not a numbskull, y'all. That's it. Please, please. And now, and now let us pray. I'm serious. God, thank you for the gift of today. We do not, and we can never deserve to be here. We are here because and only because a good and gracious God has decided to host us once again. And so we pause and we say thank you. We pause and we remember that not only have you hosted us, but you have done so without complaint. And once we had ruined your world, ruined our lives, treated each other terribly, treated you terribly, what did you do? Oh, God. You came in the flesh. You sent your son. You forgave us. You redeemed us and you have done it all without complaint because we are your children and you love us. We pray that today in these moments, perhaps God, you would work on our hearts so that we might become people who better embody this hospitality without complaint that we see in the good news of the gospel. That's hard because life is hard and it's filled with suffering and people are awful and we can be awful to people and people have been awful to us. And so we, we come and ask you that by your spirit, you might liberate us from our resentment, our anger, our suffering, not to deny it, but to deny it the last word because you raised Jesus Christ from the dead and you're gonna get the last word on every last one of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.